Welcome this morning. Let me uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Having grown up and lived in South Carolina most of my life, I recognize what today is. Today is that one day that you got that one coat that you never, ever get to wear because it's never cold enough. And today was the day for you to break out that coat. So we're glad that you are here. Don't worry about it. If you are not local to South Carolina or you just moved here, there's a saying we have, if you don't like the weather, wait 30, 45 minutes, it'll change. So Friday, it'll be 60. So just be, just be confident in that. But it is good to see each and every one of you here uh, this morning. We're going to continue in our series in Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Verses 1 through 16 this morning. And I'm thankful as we look to this passage to continue in this. This is one that most preachers look forward to. Paul has spent, you know, Acts is teaching us that Paul has spent two years in Ephesus. Uh, one of his longest stints at any one place as he has been traveling. And uh, the only other place that was significant is Corinth, which will play some role in what we'll do this morning. And like we have seen before, there has been some success, to use that word, uh, especially if you consider what the scripture says, that he was there till every person in Asia heard the gospel. That's successful. The advancement or the proclamation of the gospel going forward till those who would hear it and know it. We've seen that, but we've also seen some struggles. Like other places, he was forced to leave. He was, his plans changed rapidly. He was met with a riot here in Ephesus and others. And when we come to understand that, we recognize that much of Acts reads as a report, almost like uh, uh, giving some sort of news or information. It's, it's like what Luke says. Luke, who wrote Acts, also the, wrote the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke, he says that he has compiled these things, he has brought them together, and he's reporting everything that Jesus said and did. And now, in Acts, he's continuing that. He's reporting everything that Jesus said and did through his apostles. And so we're getting a message here, a story. He's telling us something, reading like research that he has done and informing us on how things continued. Now, what we find here is unlike the research needed for the gospel of Luke, which uh, he was not present for, so he had to ask and do interviews. Unlike that research needed for the gospel, this in Acts is a firsthand account because Luke is there. He's a witness to these things. You see in our passage using that, that first person plural, we, he's there, he is present. And so when you find him present, you get a little more information. You get tuned in to a, little, uh, a few more things that happen, which leads to passages like ours. And so if we can, let's read together Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there as already, or you can follow along there on the screen. Uh, coming off of the riot in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 1 reads this way. After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, 
he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Tros. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came up to, up, we came to them at Tros, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little, for, with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Matalin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. The day after that, we went to Malatus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, of course, for your word and how your word comforts us and encourages us. So God, today, may that be the case. May we be comforted and encouraged by your word. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you read this passage, something really stands out. Amidst the travel plans of Paul, amidst the ones he's traveling with, is the story of Eutychus. Now, depending on your perspective, you may come to different conclusions. Now, I want to go ahead and let you guys know something. Every pastor has a story about people sleeping while they are preaching. This is Paul's story. And it's a good one. I have my own story. I believed probably with a little bit of confidence early on that I could hold everyone's attention. That was put to death whenever I was preaching at my first church, a small church in Kentucky that had a large sanctuary. And over many times it had, it had kind of died down and there was about 100 people there when I first started. And as I was preaching, there was Miss Geneva. Miss Geneva and Mr. Harold sat on the second row because Mr. Harold couldn't hear. So he believed that he could hear me better from the second row rather than through the microphone. Miss Geneva and Harold, they were, this was their second marriage. Both of them now had been married for 16 years, having previously been married for over 50 years to their first husband or wife. Both had passed away. About midway through the sermon, I heard a little rumble. And the rumble got louder. And the rumble got louder and louder till I looked to recognize it was Miss Geneva 
snoring on the second row loudly. Mr. Harold couldn't hear her. <laughs> and in this sanctuary that we were in, it was a lot of space in between the next few people, right? And so finally, a man named Donnie, Miss Geneva's son, who was sitting in the far back corner, yelled out in the midst of my sermon, sorry, Josh, somebody wake up mama. She's roaring like a lion up there. Somebody had to get up and walk, wake up Miss Geneva, and then simply looked at me and said, all right, go ahead. So depending, all of us have these stories. Depending upon your perspective, there's some conclusions you can reach from this passage. One, don't fall asleep in church or you might die. And I'm not Paul, right? We did have training on our AED devices this week, but I wouldn't trust that if I was you. The other may come at me a different way. Don't preach too long or you're going to kill somebody. Either way, the perspective is going to depend on where you're looking, maybe from out there or from up here. And this passage is kind of going to teach us a few things, not just about falling asleep in church, but about how we preach and what we proclaim. It's going to teach us some more, though. So before we get to that portion of the text with Eutychus, there's some things I want us to learn. As God's people, as God's people, we worship him and follow him. And as we worship him and follow him, he will make our steps. He will set our path and he will comfort us. He will comfort us. I want us to see a few things here in this passage because some of it may be missed just simply because how we read this passage kind of can get what may be mundane for us. The first thing I want us to see is God's unfolding plan. God's unfolding, the unfolding plan of God to bring the gospel to the nations. We, we say uh, oftentimes what goes around comes around. It's kind of a saying that we have, that, that things often repeat themselves. And, and yes, that is true. There's nothing new under the sun, and what happens tends to, to repeat itself sometimes in our life, whether it's, it is some sort of, of bad habits that we have or things that form up. That may be true, but I want you, us to understand something as Christians. As Christians, we do not believe that history is circular. In other words, it's not spinning around and going around. The Christian view of history is linear. It had a beginning, and it's moving toward a finale. There is something that started it, and now we are moving along the line to a great and glorious finish, consummation of it all. So when we understand how history works, we see reading Acts that what's happening here is the reporting of the beginning of something and the growth of it. The beginning of it and the growth. And, and when we read it that way, it helps us to recognize that we here at Taylor's First are in this very same story. This is our story of how the gospel began and the gospel grew and the gospel got to us. So we see here the start of the church. We see here how history is beginning to unfold. What we see in Acts, especially in these verses, verses 1 through 6, truly is God's sovereign plan to save the nations from their sins unfolding. This passage had already told us Paul's plan. But, but not much had happened, recognized, as Paul had planned. 
There's frustration everywhere. Even, even as we, we remember, remember how the Macedonian call worked out as Paul tried to go here but was stopped, tried to go there but was, but was stopped, tried to continue this way but wouldn't be allowed until finally the Lord through, through this one in Macedonia and a dream of Paul says, come to us and now you see the plan of God unfold. And, and here you see it with Paul. Everywhere he goes, there's some sort of, of trouble. There's some sort of riot. Things are not ending how he would want them to end. Things are not finishing how he would want them to finish. Over and over again, even as he goes to Macedonia, he has to leave because there's, there's great disturbance there. As he's in Ephesus, he has to leave because there's a riot there. And when we see this, we recognize as Paul's getting to the end of this third missionary journey, we recognize that Paul has a heart to get to Jerusalem. Not only that, he has a heart to get to Rome. If you look back in chapter 19, it says that in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul's heart to see Jerusalem was a heart for his people. We, we recognize as Paul's writing in Romans in chapter 9, 10, 11, his love for the Jews. And we even see it in his practice here, his people, as, as he goes to synagogue after synagogue. But notice, as he's traveling from synagogue to synagogue, it's the Jews that keep rising up against him. And there was great persecution, having, having heard this, there's great persecution in Jerusalem over those Christians who have come out of that Jewish community to believe in Jesus. They're being persecuted, and, and Paul has heard that and wants to get to them. Not only that, remember Aquila and Priscilla were in Rome, but they had been run out of Rome by the emperor Gaius who had, who had persecuted them. And so he met them in Corinth. So there's believers being persecuted in Jerusalem. There's believers being persecuted in Rome. And Paul has a great desire to get there. He wants to get there. So everywhere he's going now, that becomes his heart. He's, he's wanting to get to Jerusalem. He's wanting to get to Rome. But even in going to Jerusalem, it probably was not Paul's plan to get to Rome with handcuffs on his hands. It was most likely Paul's plan to spend time in Jerusalem and then set sail for Rome. But remember how it goes down. Even in the plan, Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's arrested. They're being arrested. He figures out how he can get to Rome free of charge. He simply keeps appealing to the next person and the next person till he's taken all the way to Caesar and gets to Rome. While that was Paul's plan, it did not necessarily work the way he wanted it to work. But still, God accomplished the gospel getting to Rome. Paul had likely left Ephesus around May of A.D. 55. That's one of our, our time periods. He's, he's spending Pentecost there. He wants to spend the next Pentecost in Jerusalem. So as Pentecost comes there, he's trying to get to Jerusalem. All of this comes from reading, by the way, 1 Corinthians 16. If you have a, 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 a note here, you can simply make it in your Bible. It was in, it was in Ephesus that Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 16 teaches us a lot about what's going on even at this time in Acts chapter 20. Paul's desire to reach Jerusalem leads him to take way back towards the, the place, but it, he, he goes by sea, but that's stopped. He has to go by land. All of these things seem to come at us as Luke is telling us the story. They seem mundane. They seem tedious sometimes. For readers, we, we, we get to this, we like the big events, and, and really this kind of gets, 
eaten up with the story of Eutychus as, as we see that it's put together with these passages, verses 13 through 16, tagging on to verses 1 through 6. But the details, the details not only, they do really two things. They not only bolster the historicity of the scriptures, they show us that this is true, right? Luke is not telling us and making up some stories. He's, he's giving us every little detail of who was traveling and where they went and why they went there. It speaks to the truth of what's going on. But it also teaches us of the progression of Paul's mission. And by the progression of Paul's mission, the gospel's advancement from one place to the next. It teaches us something about our own life. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. It teaches us something about how our own life has come to the very place we are today. In this room, in this place, every single one of us has a story. There has been decision after decision that has been made that has led us right here to this point. At 8.30 in the morning, Worshiping and singing praise to Christ Jesus and listening to his word preached. Every decision in your life ultimately has come to this place. And some of those decisions have not been the best. Some of those decisions had led to some bumpy periods and some difficult times. And some of those decisions have been hard to deal with. And some of them you're still dealing with the ramifications of what those decisions meant. And you are still here. Quite often, things do not work out like we want them to do. The dreams we have coming out of high school don't always meet with the reality of 45 years old, right? What we decide or what we hope that we might be doesn't always pan out. And really, when we get to thinking about why we are here and what's going on, we might not know how we got here. We might not know how we got to this place. We, we might have a world of regrets, when we look back over our history, our decisions, we might look back with shame. We might look back in pain. You may not know why you are here this morning, but know this. You being in this room is no accident. You being in this place is not a mere happenstance of history. You didn't stumble in here with no clue, with no understanding. You being in this room is a testimony to God's sovereign working in your life. To him bringing you to this point. It's not an accident. There's nothing here uh, that's happened that, that just simply is happenstance. All the twists and turns of our life. All the good decisions and all the bad decisions. All the unexpected trials and all the unprovoked difficulties. If they lead you to the Lord himself, they are good for you. They are good for you. If you've been redeemed, if you know Christ Jesus, if you are his child, you can say that every single thing that has happened to you has happened for your good. Why? Because you are in Christ. And what's most important about us is not our past. What's most important about us is our present. 
where we are and who we trust in, what we're devoted to and who we're believing in. Because belief in Scripture is never just a past action. It is a present action. Not just that you believed in Christ, but that you are believing even now in Christ. My prayer for my children every single night before we go to bed is that they would believe and keep believing. You see, ultimately, that becomes the hope that all of us have. They believe and keep believing. But more important, even that, more important even than our past and and seemingly more important than, than, than even the present, if you may say that, is our future. And no matter what happens in our life, if it leads us to Christ and leads us to an eternity with him, it is for our good. And God has worked all things out for you if you're his child to bring you to a place of repentance, to bring you to a place of trust, to bring you to a place that you're following him and wanting to seek after him. He's worked all of it out, even through our twists and turns, even through our dumb decisions that we make. He's bringing us to this place so that he may bring us safely home. And he will. As Psalm 37 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, what what he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Though he even falls, he shall not lose his life, for the Lord keeps him. Just like we see in Acts. Child of God, your life is in God's hands. And he works all things together for your good. And Paul and those friends with him are a good example. Having gone through difficulty after difficulty, still yet he's working it out for them to continue this gospel advancement. For this gospel advancement. But not only that, Luke wants us to see. He wants us to take note of this Lord's Day miracle. Not just his unfolding plan, but this Lord's Day miracle. The simple little phrase at the beginning of of this next section, verse 7. It could be passed over with little fanfare. It could almost seem like another simple detail in the story that we have that just is there for filler. But here in chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week... This is the first mention in all of the New Testament of Christians worshiping on a Sunday. It's the first mention of it. It's the first mention of of all of the New Testament of Christians gathering together on the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, literally the first day after Sabbath, right? So so Saturday being the, the seventh day, the first day after Sunday, this is the first mention of it. Now, this practice is, I believe, prescriptive for the church. It's what we have been doing, the church has been doing ever since. It's recognized to this very day. We have gathered together on the first day of the week here again this morning. And why do we gather on the first day? If you you read Revelation chapter 1, it doesn't refer to this as the Sabbath, it refers to it as the Lord's Day. Here John is caught up on the Lord's Day, that first day of the week. So we refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. As Christians, we recognize that our Sabbath is not in a day at all. 
Our Sabbath is not in a 24-hour period. Our Sabbath is in a person. Our rest, which is what Sabbath means, our rest is found in Jesus Christ. We find our rest there. So the purpose of the Sabbath day has been fulfilled in the Savior, Jesus, who gives us final rest forever. So we rest in him. Our worship is on the first day. And why do we worship on the first day? It's the day that Jesus rose again. We've talked about this many times. Just as they had gathered on that that first Sunday and the Lord appeared to them and said, Peace, so we gather. We gather with the understanding that Jesus Christ is alive and we come in here with the primary primary purpose, our primary reason is to celebrate and worship the resurrected King Jesus. This is why we are here. The linchpin of our faith is the resurrection. Without any resurrection, there is no hope. Without any resurrection, there is no salvation. Without any resurrection, there is no life. The resurrection occurred through the, the, uh, bur- the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the resurrection occurred, and so we celebrate that. We have many traditions. We have many practices. Some will change with time. Some will not. But the the meeting of Christ's church on Sunday is one that is built upon the word of God and the powerful testimony of his resurrection. That's why we are here. And so Paul and and the believers had gathered together on the first day of the week. And and several things happened as they gathered together. First, they ate together. Probably gathered together early in the evening to eat. It tells us they'd break bread. This is the same language used in chapter 4 of how the apostles broke bread. We spoke of it there as fellowship. They gathered together for fellowship as believers to share stories of life, encouragement, strength, to to sit around the table. It could also refer to the Lord's Supper. As 1 Corinthians 11 says, they gathered together to break bread. In other words, to, to represent or remember as Christ had told them what had happened on the cross of, of celebrating the supper together. Possibly both of these things happen. And what, what we see here in Acts 20 is not an exhaustive lift, but it teaches us that as believers get together, one of the things we do is we fellowship. We may not often eat, but absolutely we'll have coffee, right? And so we fellowship. We speak together. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another. The second thing, though not in this passage, I don't want to miss this, and this this is not a a joke, but it could be considered. They take up an offering. They take up an offering. It's 1 Corinthians 16. Paul is writing from Ephesus, speaking of it. He says, we got together on the first day every week to take up an offering for the saints. And so not only do they gather together in fellowship, they they gather together to take up an offering for the purpose of blessing other Christians. And so he encourages the churches to do the same. Gather together on the first week and take up money for other believers to advance the gospel. They do this. He says, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week in 1 Corinthians 16. But not only that, They heard the word preached. And boy, did they. After supper, probably early evening, this is of course before electricity, it tells us that there were many lamps in the upper room. 
Paul took advantage of the moment and he began to preach. And he continued. And he continued. And he con- I, I love how it just says, and Paul talked still longer. He kept going to the point of it went from early evening supper until midnight. And at this point, we're introduced to this young man named Eutychus, probably a teenager. We'd have never known him if he hadn't fallen asleep and fallen out of a window. Maybe in the upper room when it was crowded, it was hot, he just got a full meal and and he found a little window that he could perch himself on and and these lamps are in there burning. So you got people, you got lamps, you got heat, y'all know how it works. And so he's sitting there and he falls out of the window. It says he fell three stories, three stories down and when he hits the ground, he dies. Paul just said, hold on a second ran down the steps, went, bent over him, took him up in his arms and says, don't be alarmed, which is a translation for no big deal. He's alive. There's a book I own entitled Saving Eutychus, How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. (laughs) Truly, I've said this a million times. The last thing I want to do is be boring for God's word is not boring But my aim is more than just keeping you awake. My aim is more than just keeping you awake this morning. I want to preach in such a way so that you won't die in your sins. I want to preach in such a way that the word is proclaimed so that you won't die. Because what's true is, it is not as if Eutychus here just simply dies and falls asleep. What's really true is that all of us, apart from Christ, are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are not made alive unless God makes us alive. And what we've seen countless time after countless time after countless time in all of history is that God makes people alive through the proclamation of his gospel. He brings life through the proclamation of his gospel. And we'll see this. Not only only we see here, but we see this throughout. We see it next week in Acts chapter 20. Notice what Paul says when he calls the the Ephesian elders together. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, verse 24. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, my ministry, my preaching ministry has not been about me. He's not been proclaiming Paul. He's not setting himself up as some celebrity. No, he counts his life of no value nor as precious at all. Simply that he would proclaim the kingdom of God through the gospel of his grace from every passage in scripture. The whole counsel of God. And Paul says, I'm innocent of all of your blood because I have gotten up every single time and I've never failed to preach the gospel to you. Paul's not willing or uh, really interested in offering opinion. He's not interested in offering all these good advice and this and that when he preaches the gospel. Although those things are bad, Paul says, I know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
that what I get up and do to you is to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified in resurrection. And that's the type of preaching, I believe, that keeps all of us from dying. From dying in our sins. Preaching is an understanding between the preacher and those who hear. I'll come with a message from God's word, prayed up and ready to spill my guts with the gospel of Christ Jesus. But you come with a heart ready to hear from God's word. We put our interest and we put our hope in so many things in this world. And on Sunday morning, we gather to stay here. Here is where our priority lies. The gathering together of the saints and the preaching of the word is not something we do when we have nothing else to do. It's our priority in life as his people. And Paul says, here's what we want to do. And those, those who come to faith in Christ, as we will see, they pass from death to life, just like Eutychus did when he fell out of that building. The miracle of the resurrection of Eutychus points to the miracle of all of us having been born again. All based on the resurrection of our Savior. As Ephesians 2 says, when Paul writes back, maybe with Eutychus in his mind, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. The proclamation, preaching or sharing of the powerful word of God does this. It brings life. After Eutychus is raised, there's no way you can go home after that, right? They stay together till daybreak. They stay together till daybreak, continuing to discuss. Can't go home. And what is the result? Verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. The way this section ends, they were not a little comforted. I don't want to read anything into Luke's language, but it looks like he's being a little bit understated here. There was great comfort from the saints. Paul's ministry was one of encouragement. It tells us that back in verse 1. He's going around encouraging them. He's giving them encouragement in verse 2. It tells us that on three or four other occasions that Paul wanted to encourage the churches. Paul sometimes gets a bad rap. We see him with some strict teacher or some bold proclaimer that's willing to do anything and no nonsense. But in reality, Paul was an encourager and his ministry was one of encouragement. In fact, when we see this word in verse 1, it's the same word that we have in verse 12, parakaleo. It's the word we get paraclete from, the comforter. It's what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, the helper or comforter, the paraclete. He is comforting us. The Spirit comforts us. Jesus comforts us as the Spirit is called another comforter. Spirit, Jesus, bring comfort to us. And Paul's ministry in this way was Spirit-like and Christ-like. But how? By ministering the Word. The raising of Eutychus seems almost a side note in what's going on because what's happening is Paul is opening the Word to them and proclaiming it. And the Word brings comfort. Why? Because God is a God of all comfort, as Paul writes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. And his word brings comfort to us. And isn't it comforting to know this? To know that no matter what has happened in your windy road, God has brought you here to Jesus. Isn't it comforting to know that he covers our mistakes? He covers our 
discretions. He covers the things that, that we don't want exposed to the world, the things we don't like to talk about at parties. God covers those and brings us safely to himself and carries us. Isn't it comforting to know that he's the one who guides our steps? And even when he, we fall, he holds our hands. This is what the word teaches us. And isn't it comforting to know that the truth of Christ Jesus and his resurrection, especially in the midst of a world of chaos, the truth of a resurrected Savior stands greater. When we see the chaos around us, when we see the nonsense going on, we look to Christ, who is our North Star. He is the one who corrects us. He is the one who guides us. His word, the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, he brings us comfort in the midst of an uncomfortable world. And the comfort we find in him is a greater treasure than we have ever known. And I want you to come to church I want you to come to Taylor's. I want you to spend time in worship. I want you to fellowship with friends. I want you to speak to people who love you and care for you, who are concerned for you and who will pray for you. I want you to come to church and find comfort in Christ Jesus and his word. And I want to preach in such a way that you can find that comfort. If you're a child of God, that's what I want. But if you're not a believer, if you're not a child of God, I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to be uncomfortable with your life. What are you really trusting in? Where do you really find your hope? Can they sustain you for all eternity, much less tomorrow? Can it really satisfy you? Can it really give you what you're looking for? Can the things that you are trusting in and that you're depending on really, really be found 10,000 years from now? What I'm trying to offer you is the one who can sustain you for all eternity. What I'm trying to tell you is this the one you build your life on and he will give you the joys of your heart. He will sustain you in every step. This is Christ. And if you're building your life on anything else, may you be uncomfortable there until you find your comfort in Christ. Until you find your comfort in the one who can truly sustain you. Paul ministers to the word. Paul preaches in such a way that brings life. And he brought comfort to the people. May God bring comfort to us through his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. You are good. God, may, may we as a people this morning find our comfort in you, our Savior. Just as we sang, Scott and our band did an incredible job leading us to sing, I trust in God. Father, I pray, I pray that that is not platitudes. It's not just a song we sing, but it's true of every single one of us. I trust in you, Lord. God, for those here this morning who follow you and trust you, may you bring them comfort in Christ. Comfort of knowing you mark their steps. Comfort in knowing, Father, that, that you bring life and salvation. And they can trust you. God, if someone's here today and does not know you, make them uncomfortable until they call upon the one who can sustain them and satisfy them. Jesus Christ, our Lord.
May they call upon him now. Let's stand together and sing.